In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, in the ages of all ages, Amen. Last week I showed you guys, we just did like a quick little intro, um, uh, I showed you guys a clip from a sermon by Francis Chan, um, that, uh, that he, uh, a sermon that he said towards the very beginning of, uh, of, of this year, of 2020. Um, and Francis Chan is an evangelical uh, megachurch pastor who founded this church called Cornerstone and it grew to a massive church um, and then um, he uh, left that because he felt that people were worshipping him rather than worshipping God and so he left that and he started a very quiet home church movement amongst the poor uh, in California and it's grown now to, I think, about 30 house churches or something along those lines. Very interesting person um, of the evangelical uh, you know, tradition. Um, but he says something which was absolutely earth-shattering. He, he, he says that, that uh, for, the, for, for 1,500 years, Christian worship was all around the table. And Christians always believed that that was the real body and the real blood of Christ. So naturally, if Christ is physically and substantially, materially present, he was the center of attention, naturally. But as post-Protestant Reformation, as the, that there, there was a change in the thinking amongst the those of the, of the Reformation, that maybe this is symbolic, or maybe there's a spiritual presence of Christ, and so on, all of a sudden the pulpit, the lectern where the preacher stands, took the center stage, and it was the word which was spoken, the preaching, the teaching, which suddenly got the center stage, and sometimes there was a table somewhere in the back, and sometimes not. But he says this statement, that for the first 1,500 years, Everyone saw communion as the literal body and blood of Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. My objective today is very simple. I think St. John, the, the, uh, the apostle, says it in his gospel. He says his, his, his objective of his gospel and my objective of today is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Because believing in him brings eternal, eternal life. Jesus says it in his, in his last prayer before getting arrested and going to the cross. He says, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life, Jesus? This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My objective, my goal today is for us to examine this question. Ought we to believe, yes or no, that this is the real and very, no, not symbolic, not commemorative, not spiritual, not all of those things, and also the real, substantial, and uh, material body and blood of Jesus Christ? Yes or no? We'll be examining this statement, which is not only said by Francis Chan, but since he was just he's such a bit of a a huge figure in Protestantism, this kind of did create some, some, um, some ripples. Let's start at the source. Let's see what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the living, this is from John 6, which I urged you all to read last week if you had a chance. Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus says this in John 6 in the context of, this is the context. A little bit earlier, the day before, Jesus is on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. And he, there's people who have been following him all around the Sea of Galilee. And they've been following him for a long time. And, and Jesus tells his disciples, you know, we're, we've got to give these guys something to eat before we send them home. And they look around and there's nothing. And there's a little boy with a lunchbox, you know, and his five little barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus takes them and blesses them and he feeds the people on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. And they feed 5,000 people. And then Jesus tells them, gather up all the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. So that to go and they collect all of the bits and pieces that are left and, and, and distribute them amongst the poor. And they, the disciples must have been exhausted. And the people keep coming to Jesus and the apostles. So Jesus tells the apostles, he tells them, he tells them, you guys get in a boat and cross over, cross the Sea of Galilee to the eastern coast, to Capernaum. You all go there, I'll, I'll follow, I'll, I'll follow, don't worry. So Jesus holds back the crowds, the, the disciples go in the boat, they go to Capernaum. Jesus then continues with the people until the people finally leave. Then the disciples get, all this is in John 6, the disciples get caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus comes to them walking on the water and he accepts them into the boat. What a day! Feeding of the 5,000, walking on water. Jesus calms the storm. All of this happens in one day and a night. They show up in Capernaum. Now the people who ate the 5,000 the 5, and their children and wives, they who ate, who are on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, they, they woke up the next morning and they said, where's Jesus? Because Jesus equals lunch, right? So where's my lunch or where's my Jesus? Same deal, right? And they look, they're looking for Jesus who brings lunch and Jesus is gone, right? And they hear word from Capernaum saying that Jesus is in Capernaum. So what do they do? They all scurry over, some of them skirt the Sea of Galilee, some of them get in boats, and they all go to Jesus and they tell him, when did you come here? And Jesus tells them something. He tells them, you're not coming to see me because I give you the word of life. You're coming to see me because I give you lunch. Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. And then he tells them, forget about this bread. I am the bread. That's the context in which Jesus brings this up. I am the bread which came down from heaven. Y'all are looking for lunch. I want to give you eternal life. Y'all are looking for lunch. I want to give you eternal life. <laughs> and he goes on, right? <coughs> and he says, And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the word, world. What he gives, he, Jesus says himself, what he gives is his very own flesh. That's what he's promising to give us. A little further on, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, that, you know, the, 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 the ellipses here, the three little dots are, I took a verse out just so that it all fit on one. Some of the Jews start saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? I just took that verse out so it could fit. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, 
that's most certainly I say to you. In, in um, more modernized paraphrases, it says, it, you know, it's been paraphrased to say, like my name is Jesus, I say to you, right? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus is very categorical, and he says this statement as a correction of the murmurings of, of, of the people. And he says, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. How many times is it repeated here? Jesus himself is telling us, this is my flesh. This is my blood given, given for you. Let's see what St. Paul says. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and who are we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. St. Paul is very, he's categorical here. And a little bit further in chapter 11, I, I, had, I had more to share, but I'm, I'm just going to leave it for you to look it up if you want, or if you want some references, I'll give you the additional, the additional references. Notice he says, the bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We're called to participate in something which is already happening. And we're going to talk about that next week. Next week, we're going to examine all, all of the uh, concerns with this, with this doctrine. One of which is, is Jesus crucified multiple times? Is he crucified every day on every altar? You know, if he's a sacrifice, then it's really him and it's really his body and he's really broken. You know? <clears throat> We're participating in something which is already happening, and we are sharing in one bread, which makes us one body. There's a part in the liturgy that the priest prays, and the process, we're going to talk about this next week, about how does this happen. Um, and we'll talk about as much as we know, the rest is mystery, but we'll talk about it. But it's a process which happens, a process of transformation. But at a certain point, it is no longer bread and wine. It is most certainly the body and blood of Christ. Where, from the beginning to the end of that process of transformation, does it happen? I don't know. I can't tell you. But I can tell you when the process starts, and I can tell you when the process ends. And from that point on, we only refer to the elements on the altar as the body and blood of Christ. And immediately after that, Immediately after that, the first prayer the priest prays, he says, Make us all worthy, O our Master, that we may partake of your, of your body, and that we may become one body and one spirit, and have a share and inheritance with all your saints who have pleased you since the beginning. At that point, we're saying, Lord, we want in. We want a share. We want a share of the inheritance that the saints have already inherited. We want a share in your body. And so all of us, that we may become one body and one spirit. So it's not just the, there's not, there's a miracle which happens in every liturgy that bread becomes body and wine becomes blood. But there's an even greater miracle which happens 
if you allow me to say, an even more magnificent miracle which happens, that we become the body. It's not just the bread and the wine which are transformed. It's you who's transformed to become the body and the blood of Christ on earth, to be the incarnate Jesus, to be his body, and all of us together form his body and his blood. So St. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, Is it fitting for me to take the body of Christ and to make it members with a harlot? Like, and he says, This is the body of Christ. This is the body of Jesus. It has his spirit dwelling inside, and it's his body. What more do you want? What more could you want? And we could look at various other scriptural references, but I will, I will save you. Okay? <clears throat> the Didache, the Didache was the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, a collection of their sayings that was used for the instruction of new believers who were preparing for baptism. What did they say there? They said, let no one eat and drink of your Eucharist, but those baptized in the name of the Lord. To this too, the saying of the Lord is applicable, do not give to dogs what is sacred. You know, we could talk about the dogs bit. I'm sure some of you may find that offensive, right? But the apostles are saying this is the saying of the Lord. So it's not, these aren't my words or the apostles' words. These are the sayings of Christ, the words of Christ himself, say the disciples. But the point is this, is that they refer to the Eucharist as sacred, as holy. And there's many, there's, there's two other references, but again, I will spare you. <clears throat> Sorry, this is a, a typo. This is supposed to be St. Ignatius of Antioch. What does he say? St. Ignatius, Ignatius of Antioch was the third bishop of Antioch. So St. Peter, the disciple of Jesus, was the, the first bishop of Antioch. And then St. Evodius, right after him. And then after him, St. Ignatius. St. Ignatius is thought to be the boy who gave the five loaves and the two fish to Christ. St. Ignatius saw Jesus. So this is not somebody who is like... 500 years later and could have been susceptible to some distorted teaching. This is somebody who witnessed Christ himself and was there as the church was born and followed the steps of it and believed in Jesus. What does St. Ignatius say? St. Ignatius says lots of beautiful things. He says, consider how contrary to, uh, to the mind of God are the heterodox in regard to the grace of God which comes to us. They have no regard for charity, none for the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, none for the man in prison, the hungry, or the thirsty. Amongst this great disregard for humanity, he puts with it, they abstain from the Eucharist. It's on the same level for him as being inhumane to those in need. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins, and, and which the Father, in his graciousness, raised from the dead. And he says, they don't believe. And that's why they don't participate. If they believe, they'd be running through the door faster than you and me. But that's why, because they don't, because they don't believe. What else does he say? He has seven letters. <clears throat> I couldn't resist. I have to give you at least a few quotes of his. He's got, he's got tons more. He constantly refers to, 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 to the Eucharist and Holy Communion as the medicine of immortality and the antidote against death, enabling us to live forever in Jesus Christ. 
Constantly, he refers to it as the medicine of immortality, the antidote against death. Jesus says, if you do not eat my flesh and you do not drink my blood, you have no life in you. There's like nothing, nothing in that is, is uh, Jesus is very categorically, there's not categorical, there's no conditions or anything um, that Jesus puts there. Also, St. Ignatius writes in another letter, he says, he's saying this is, he wrote this letter towards the very end of his life, he says, I have no taste for food that perishes and the pleasures of this life. I want the bread of God, which is the flesh of Christ, who was the seed of David, and for drink I desire blood, which is the love that cannot be destroyed. Categorically, the, there is no... You know, the, the real problem that a lot of scholars have had in researching this question is that there was absolutely no controversy about this. It wasn't even brought into question, at least academically. At least there's no manuscripts to demonstrate that it was even questioned until the ninth century. Right? So there's no apology of it in the early church because no one, everybody believed it. It was like, it was like believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Or, 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 or whatever else foundational belief. Worship in the early church was the Eucharist. They would gather, they would read from the teachings of the apostles, and then they would celebrate the Eucharist. And then they would have an agape meal. That's what they did. That's all they did. They didn't have Bible studies and marriage prep and <laughs> Life 101 and Alpha. And they didn't have all these fun, creative other things that we do, you know, to fill our church calendar. They had the Eucharist, and it was central to all of their worship and all of their gathering. St. Justin the Martyr was actually sent by the emperor. He was pagan, and he was sent by the emperor to investigate these cannibals who eat flesh and drink blood, and the emperor had gotten some reports of this. So in the second century, the 100s, the emperor sent him as, so he went to, to go and investigate these churches. And then, and then he couldn't get in because they, they were persecuted. So you have to be a Christian to, to enter. It wasn't like anybody could enter, right? And so he, all, all he could do is he feigned to believe, he faked to believe, and he was baptized. And he started to attend, and guess what happened? Lo and behold, he believed, right? And then he wrote back to the emperor, and he was martyred for his apology, for his defense of, of what happens. This is what he says. He, uh, St. Justin the Martyr, other than the Gospels, is the, some of the earliest accounts of what did worship look like. What did they do? What was liturgy? What, what did they do in the, in the, in the first and second century? The, the period immediately after the Acts of the Apostles. So, <coughs> he's explaining, this food we call Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake except one who believes that the things we teach are true, and has received the washing for forgiveness of sins and for rebirth, and who lives as Christ handed down to us. So these are the criteria. For we do not receive these things as common bread or common drink, but as Jesus Christ our Savior, being incarnate by God's word, who took flesh and blood for your salvation. So also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation, is the flesh and the blood of the incarnate Jesus. 
The first thing I want to share about this quote is he is absolutely categorical that this is indeed the body and the blood of Christ. And this is what we believe. And if you don't believe that, no problem, but don't show up. Right? That's what he says. Right? If you don't believe it, right? And his criteria up here. The next part I want to share with you is just absolutely beautiful. The part in the middle here, he says, what happens? How does it happen? It's consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, from God, for which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation. What's he saying here? The food is consecrated by a word of prayer. Pause for a second and enjoy the irony. Enjoy the beauty. How does St. John start his gospel off? In his first chapter, he says, And the Word became flesh. The Word, the Logos of the Father, the Word which the Father speaks. Let there be light, and there is light. The Word, the expression of the noose of the mind of the Father, the second person, the Lord Jesus Christ, became flesh, a Word. How does a Word become flesh? I don't know. How does a word, how does a spoken word become flesh? I don't know. It's a mystery. Becomes flesh. When he becomes flesh, he speaks a word. He speaks a word and says, take, eat, this is my body. He speaks a word which takes the bread and by his word, not my word, the priest, not the guy in black. By his word, the bread becomes flesh. What irony. To, to exemplify the point in the liturgy of St. Gregory, there's a, there's a silent prayer that the priest prays, and at this point is the crowning moment of the transformation. It's called the epiclesis. It doesn't matter what it's called. Right? And after this, we only refer to the elements on the altar as body and blood of Christ. After this silent prayer, the whole congregation is kneeling. The deacon says, worship God in fear and trembling. Or in the liturgy, St. Gregory says, worship the Lamb of the Father. And everybody kneels down. And the priest prays a prayer silently. It's different in each of the liturgies, but the meaning is very similar. Very beautiful in all of them, of course. In the liturgy of St. Gregory, listen to what the priest prays. He says, O you, our master, by your voice alone, change these which are set forth. You who are with us, prepare for us this service full of mystery. Implant in us the remembrance of your holy service. Send to us the grace of your Holy Spirit and to purify and change these gifts which are set forth into the body and blood of our salvation. What does the priest say? He says, O you, O our master, by your voice alone. And then after he prays his prayer silently, he shouts with a loud voice or sings with a loud voice, and this bread he makes into his holy body, or the liturgy of St. Gregory is in the second, is in the first, this addressing Christ, makes it into your holy body, speaking to Christ. He makes it. Isn't that, isn't the irony, the irony that it's the, it's the word of God, 
who becomes flesh, who tells us this bread is flesh. By his saying this bread is flesh, it becomes flesh. The word by a word gives us his flesh to eat. The word become flesh speaks a word and turns bread into flesh for us to eat. Isn't God amazing? Isn't he amazing? Isn't he amazing? And that's what he says here. The food consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, from God, from Jesus, for, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation. Then we eat the flesh, we drink the blood, and we are nourished by transformation. We ourselves are transformed. Jesus says, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. I live in him, literally, figuratively, metaphorically, spiritually, in every sense of the word, but certainly, literally, and materially. I live in him. All of these other fathers have multiple, multiple, multiple references all quoting and saying very, very similar things. I just want to finish with St. Cyril of Jerusalem who says this. In his St. Cyril of Jerusalem is best known, lived in the, in the end of the 4th century. Three, he died in the 360s, 370s, I think. And he says he, he's best known for his catechism, his teaching, his, his method of teaching new believers. Um, and he says to them this, I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. This teaching of the blessed Paul is alone sufficient to give you full assurance concerning those divine mysteries, which when, we, when you are vouchsafed, you are of the same body and the same blood with Christ. For he has distinctly said that our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it and said, take, eat, this is my body. And having taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take, drink, this is my blood. Since then, he himself has declared and said of the bread, this is my body. Who shall dare to doubt any longer? And since he has affirmed and said, this is my blood, who shall ever hesitate, saying, it is not his blood? I'll finish with the fathers. I'll finish quoting the fathers here. St. Cyril of, of, of Jerusalem bangs the nail on the coffin, says, if Jesus himself says it, who could possibly say otherwise? Then we have a whole bunch of modern Christian historians. Um, Otto W. Haig uh, says, the post-apostolic fathers and almost all the fathers of the ancient church impressed one with their natural and unconcerned realism. To them, the Eucharist was in some sense the body and blood of Christ. These are all Protestant Christian historians, by the way. Another quote from another historian, by the middle of the second century, the conception of a real presence of Christ in, in the supper was widespread. A little bit more for you, by the middle, uh, um, Philip Schaff, who, who, who was a Protestant for almost all of his entire life, and then came work on towards the end of his life, and then after that, you know, became very quiet and kind of went off the public stage. Since the doctrine of the sacrament of the Eucharist was not a subject of theological con uh, controversy till the time of Pacifus Radbert in the 9th century. 
In general, this period was already very strongly inclined toward the doctrine of transubstantiation and toward the Greek and Roman sacrifice of the Mass, which are inseparable insofar as a real sacrifice requires a real presence of the victim. Here he describes something similar, and I'm not going to go, I uh, won't go through it all in detail, but what he's saying is this, is that if it is referred to as a sacrifice, then there must be a real, like, a real thing being sacrificed, which necessarily, like, it's, it, it, it can't be, we're offering a sacrifice, but the sacrifice is metaphorical, right? Like, either we are offering a sacrifice, or it's all metaphor. But we can't say we're offering a sacrifice, but there's nothing there. Right? That that wouldn't that wouldn't make sense. And he explains it in deep, you know, much more clearly here. That it, the word which is sacramentum is oftentimes was the word which is there was sacrificium and so on. It's all very interesting. Martin Luther himself, the father of the Protestant Reformation, also he also believed in the divine presence in the Eucharist. Right? And he says, since we are confronted by God's words, this is my body. Distinct, clear, common, definite words, which certainly are no trope, like no joke, uh, uh, either in scripture or in any language. We must embrace them with faith, not as hair-splitting sophistry dictates, but as God says them for us, we must repeat these words after him and hold to them. John Calvin believed in, in, in you know, mostly that, that, yes, indeed, this was the divine presence. And next week, we're going to talk about where did this controversy come from? It came from somebody who came after him, Ulrich Zwingli. And we'll talk about him. And why did Zwingli say that? So we'll talk all about that. We'll talk all about that next week. Okay, let's get real practical. Maybe I lost you about 20 minutes ago when you said, yeah, you know, you, Father John, you believe it's the real presence. I believe it's the real presence. So you don't need to prove it to me. You know, and this is all historical proof. I saved you the logical proof. I saved you all of the other forms of proofs that exist. And I, the first thing is that Jesus says in Luke 16, he says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. This is something I mentioned last week in the introduction. Okay, if this is indeed the body of Jesus, if this is indeed the blood of Christ, if indeed what St. John of Damascus says that I shared with you guys last week, that one speck of a crumb of the body of Christ is enough for the healing of all of creation, if that is indeed true, if indeed, indeed, this is the most precious matter on the face of the earth. This is the matter that matters the most. Shouldn't everybody who believes this be like ramming down the door to get in there? Like on Boxing Day and, and Black Friday, people line up from four in the morning to get into stores and trample each other to get sales. <coughs> To get a piece of technology that in six months from now will be outdated. To get a piece of clothing. Does this make sense? Like, do our actions reflect our belief? Or do we, like, wake up on Sunday morning, snooze the alarm, and look at it and we're like, oh, why do I have to go to church? I sleep in just a single Sunday, one Sunday in my life. Why can't I sleep in? I have a friend, a priest friend, who tells me 
every every time he's every time he's and, and I'm not making fun of you. I'm I'm, I'm actually making fun of myself, right? Um, every 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 time he goes on holiday, and there's a Sunday during his holiday, he wakes up in the morning before his family's awake, and he goes to a donut shop and he gets a donut and a coffee eats the donut and he drinks the coffee and he sits there all day, all morning saying, today is Sunday. And I'm sitting at a donut shop eating a donut and drinking a coffee. Right? But if it's true, if this is indeed true, are we, are we running towards the truth, towards the healing, towards the medicine of immortality? Are we, do we believe it? If we do, do our actions testify to it? Okay, so you run, you run, you bash the door down, you make it here. Do you and I realize that this is the moment in which we meet our maker? This is the moment in which I will look him in the eye and he will look me back. Can I tell you a little secret? Okay, this isn't a secret. You all know that I'm terrible at keeping up with my messaging and you call me and leave me a voicemail about some desperately critical event that happened in your life and I hear it like four months later, right? I'm terrible, right? If I see that I saw a message from you, like I don't know what it says, but I saw a message came from you and I didn't answer it and I'm on my way to church on Sunday, I'm like, oh my God, I got a reply to this. You know, some of you will get text message replies back from me at like, five in the morning on a Sunday, right? Why? Because I, I, I'm so embarrassed to look you in the eye and know that you messaged me and I know that you messaged me and I didn't reply, right? I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed of myself, of my disorganization, my inability to keep up with my communications, etc., etc., etc. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to bring me to face you because you honored me, but I didn't honor you. What about Jesus? We're going to come and we're going to meet him and we're going to look him straight in the eye. Are you ready to meet your maker? I was looking for like an Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, meet your maker, you know? But I couldn't find, I just, I couldn't find that picture. So CBC has this new series on Gem called Meet Your Maker, so that I'll just have to do, right? But are you ready? Are you ready to meet Are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to meet Him? Are you ready to meet Him face to face? Are you ready to look Him in the eye? Are you ready? Have you made amends? Have you reconciled? Have you repented? Have you confessed? That's why. That's why the fathers were saying that. They weren't saying that. They're not. They're not as. They don't want to stick in the mud. They don't want to rain on your parade. They don't want to rain on my parade. They want us to prepare ourselves to meet Him for who He really is. I want to give you a word of comfort. You know, in the, in the liturgy, <laughs> come communion time, we have the subdeacon says this announcement that we wrote. This is a local tradition, uh, but we had it vetted by like more you know scholarly and smart people than us, right? That tells people, please come to the altar table. If you're not baptized, come receive a blessing. If you are baptized, please come and receive Holy Communion. If you think you are not adequately prepared, please come and speak with the priest. So, Father John, you said I have to be ready to meet my maker. Like, I'm not I'm ready to meet my maker, so I'm just stay here in my pew. You guys can all go have communion. You go all meet your maker and see what happens to you. If it, if it turns out okay for you, maybe I'll go, right? 
No, no, come, come, come. But, but Father, I haven't confessed in some time. I want to share with you what the monk who taught us in the monastery to do in this situation. He said, when people come to you and they give you excuses why they shouldn't have communion, your job as the priest who's standing there is to figure out a way they can have communion right now. If it's not possible, figure out when's the next time they can have communion and make sure it happens. So we so gave him examples. People say, I came late. Okay, fine. You missed the liturgy of the word. Have communion now. Please sit and read the readings. Enjoy them. Pray through the readings. Pray through the readings that you missed so that you participate in the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the believers. So you didn't get only half of the meal. You know? But come, have communion. Now the answer is not don't have communion. The answer is let's fix it. But, but Father, I haven't confessed in some time. That's okay. No problem. Have communion. Before you leave today, come and confess. It will take 45 seconds. You will say what you have to say. We'll offer it to God. I will pray for you. You will come. Easy peasy. No problem. No questions asked. Right? But Father this, but Father that. But Father, I'm not fasting. Let's have communion right now. Let's figure out a fasting regimen that works for you. So you can continue to have communion all throughout the fast. And fast a little bit at a time as much as you're able. Let's figure it out. The answer is never to push somebody away. The answer is always to figure something out that we, that, that we can participate in the ministry of reconciliation God has given us. Lastly, if this is indeed true, if this is indeed the body and blood of Jesus, why do we come alone? If there's a sale on I don't know where, I get three or four phone calls. If, if that at one point RBC was doing this thing, this was a long time ago, they were the first to do it. They give you a free iPad if you open the checking account or whatever, right? I literally got four phone calls that day. You know what I mean? While supplies last, you know, hey, Father John, go run, blah, 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 you know, for an iPad. That is now obsolete four years later. Why do I come alone? If you knew where the cure for cancer was, and you knew that it was free. Forgive me to say, okay, forgive me. I say something, and you have to forgive me before I say it. Wouldn't you consider it criminal not to share that news? Wouldn't you consider it criminal to let people die when you knew how to save them? Why am I not doing it? Why am I not trying? You can invite people. They can say no. It's a free world. It's free. Everybody has their autonomy. God respects everybody. God respects our autonomy more than we respect our own autonomy. So I respect, you know, in, in light of that, I respect your autonomy. But I can at least invite you. I can at least tell you, hey, something really great going on tomorrow morning. Why don't you come? No? Let us, let us review in our hearts and in our minds whether we truly believe or whether we don't. If we call others, if we come ourselves to see, what will happen with us is what happened with the people of Samaria in the city of Sychar. Jesus goes, he sits by a well, he talks with the woman. She goes to the city and she says, you got to meet this guy. He's told me everything I've ever done in my life. The people leave the village and they come. She called them, so they came. 
they come to see Jesus. And they tell him, you gotta, you got to stay with us. Don't leave. Please don't leave. And he stays with them a couple of days. And at the end of those couple of days, the people go to the woman. And they said to the woman, now we believe because we have heard him ourselves. Not just because of what you told us. He is indeed the Savior of the world. In the Psalms it says, Oh, taste and see the Lord, that the Lord is good. I don't think that this was written a thousand years before Jesus, metaphorically anymore. I'm sure that these words were chosen on purpose because he wants us to take and to eat, to taste, to perceive, to eat him and to know that he is good. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.